Welcome guys. Uh, today I'm very excited to be with one of my personal mentors and good friend, Michael Scott, who is uh, one of these people that has managed to be successful many times over as a founder and has become an investor and mentor to many other startups, also lectures at Harvard University, and is just generally a, a fountain of wisdom. And uh, the hard part when you meet somebody like Michael is you want to understand how he began, how, how did he begin? And so if, if I might be so bold and, and ask maybe uh, the origins of Michael, um, what did you study in school and, and, and how did you make this transition to, to sort of the early days of, of your professional career in, in Symantec? Well, with an introduction like that, it's going to have to be at least 10 steps down before we get to reality. So I was a very lucky, regular guy. Um, the lucky piece is that I had a father who was an orphan who basically made it clear that he earned whatever he had in life. And so I assume that's what everybody did. And uh, he also was a visionary. And so when the first sets of sort of computer programming came along in the form of punch boards, uh, he as an engineer was using them to control machine tools. And he got me hooked on computer programming. And the next thing I know, I was writing computer programs for people to do everything from portfolio management to shipping optimization to inventory control. Ah, okay. So that was as a teen. And so I was starting a business basically out of necessity because that's how I earned money. And uh, I bought my first car and went on vacations and things like that, uh, doing something that I loved. And that is uh, why I say I feel I'm very lucky because I think if people can find out what they're passionate about early in life, and pursue it, then I think they're in a great spot. So you were building product from an early day? Very early day, yeah. So, so what did you end up studying in school then? Computer science or? <laughs> the irony of this is that I studied almost everything but computer science. Oh, okay. In fact, I did production engineering and management science at Nottingham. But I spent my entire time during that period actually writing programs. Everything we did, I turned into a program until I ended up writing uh, what became part of a computer design system with my brother. And okay. uh, that was sort of our first joint business together, for example. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, All right, and, and so then, did, was that the first business that you did after you graduated, along with David, right? Yeah. Well, the first business I did before I graduated was yeah. writing bespoke software for all sorts of businesses, stockbrokers and, as I said, you know, uh, stores that needed inventory control, etc. And that taught me a lot, actually, because it taught me the fundamental thing I still use every day, which is start with the customer. And then mm. once you understand the customer and what you understand their need, uh, you can build from there. Mm. So it's still that was still very foundational for me. Okay. And then after? And then after, I was very lucky. Um, once I got into the, the sort of flow of business, I kept finding opportunities and needs and, and you know, addressing them. And uh, uh, the, I think the first real breakout for me was when I, when I moved from being a technically oriented entrepreneur to being a business oriented entrepreneur. Mm. And that came with Symantec, funnily enough. Um, they had been unsuccessful getting into the European market and had tried in the UK with serious sort of, if you like, um, downside associated with a few distributors mm. to get their products off the ground. And I think the third time around, they, they pretty much gave up. And I looked at them and said, wow, there's a huge product portfolio here. And why aren't they being successful? It's because they're not investing in a business over in the, in the European marketplace. Mm. Um, and it's tough for them to do so because they're trying to get to be a profitable business that can go public. So on a business model innovation level, I figured out a way to do an investment in the European marketplace for them, in the UK initially that would be off balance sheet, which once we made it successful, could be reacquired by them on an anti-dilutive basis. And that's exactly what we did. It helped them go public. It was a win-win. But how did, you, how did you make that jump from like sort of entrepreneur helping companies building stuff to identifying this opportunity with a large, I mean, I can't remember how big Semantic was. Um, I know it's, it's had its ups and downs, but like. It went from about 20 million when I first engaged with them to over a billion. 
so it was a really great period how of did communication. You, how did you make that jump? How did you like go as a as sort of a young founder to like, hey, 20 million company, yeah. do you want me to like structure something in a foreign country and sell it back to you? I mean, how, how did that work? Okay, so that's a great question. And I'm not sure I know the answer to it, right. <laughs> but I can give you the thread. The thread is this, which is I was so absolutely enamored with every one of the customers that I did projects for, in other words, that I wrote software for. Yeah. And I was learning their business every time I did it. So I was learning everything from, as I said, you know, stockbroking yeah. to, for example, you know, shipping or uh, in many instances, uh, like for example, I learned about currency trading mm. uh, from working with a company called Deco. It's a, a rubber company. God, mm. God knows how um, they identified me, but, but I ended up writing a system for them. And I became fascinated with business. Um, mm. And the business of business is what caused me to think about what are the needs of companies like Symantec when they have mm. this problem, they're not succeeding. And, and I like their products and services. What, what could I do from a business standpoint mm. to actually fix that problem? And I love solving problems. Mm. So business, solving problems, working with customers, it all mm. that's how it came about, really. So solving big problems, when you took a company that was already big and you made it a billion-dollar company within... How, how many years was that? Was five, six? Uh, well, first of all, I can't claim anything like that credit. An incredible team. I was part of it. All I did was the, you know, the small operation that we built. It became the most profitable business and one of the fastest growing outside of the U.S. So I was very proud of the team that and built it. How many? That. How big was that team? Uh, we started with like two or three people, and it probably grew to a few hundred. I, I, I can't remember how big it was, but it became a you know twenty million dollar highly profitable twenty million pound excuse me highly profitable business within about three or four years. Okay, that that's that's impressive. I mean, by any standard, and managing uh, a, a team and growth of that rate, even if it's kind of intrapreneurship, you know, within the organization. Yep. How did what were the big sort of scaling challenges that you? Like maybe you have to give the top three scaling challenges that you look back and you're like, crap, you know, like that was hard. Yeah. That was hard. Yeah. From two, three guys to 200. Yeah. These three things were hard. Okay. So that the good news is that the first, second and third are all the same. Okay. <laughs> They're all people challenges. And in fact, so much of my life is about people. So what I learned was one very, very fundamental thing, which is if you can't hire the quality of people that will be able to take the next stage of growth with you. And while you, while you hire them and while you bring them on train, their successes, you will never grow. So there are two steps I mentioned in there. Obviously, you've got to hire great people. And the second is, when you're bringing them on, you've got to be training their successes. And so you've really got to put a lot of attention into figuring out how your organization will scale in order to be enable any of this growth. If I look at, like I'm, I'm lucky enough to now have two, two companies in my portfolio that are considered some of the fastest growing companies ever. Uh, one is uh, at the Acquia story, which has you know, gone from sort of zero to 150 million within you know, five or six years. And, or Actifio would be another one that, that has done in the storage world. You will not see the product as being the issue in either of those. You will see our challenge every day in the boardroom is how can we hire the next great leader and train their replacement as we grow the business. And it's so important to spend time on that that I can't overemphasize it. It doesn't matter whether you're three people or you're 30 people or 300 or 3,000. That's the challenge. Hmm. And how do you, as a CEO, take on that knowledge and say, Am I making, is my job to make myself redundant? Yes, absolutely. And, and the irony of it is you never end up being redundant because if you grow so fast, your job becomes more and more about how do you actually lead either in a marketplace or internally support the people to go after that marketplace or engage people like your customers and your partners. So you just become busier and busier, but the job becomes more and more about how you actually stay ahead of it. 
uh, and bring people with you than it does about, you know, for example, the mistake that most fighters make is trying to keep control or trying to manage it. And, and I will tell you, I've got um, one thing I want to admit right now is the older I get, the more I realize I still have to learn about this. I was a horrible founder when I first started. I didn't know any of this stuff. I made every mistake in the book. And I learned so much from all my failures, I can tell you. I mean, you're saying that you were a horrible founder when you first started. Maybe you can walk us through the transition that you made between Symantec and your first company, I guess, that, that you that was not sort of from somebody else's brand. It was your yeah. own brand. Yeah. Because by, by your description, Symantec at, at that point must have been, you know, a, a, an engine that's roaring, you know, with that amount of uh, revenues per year. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know what it's like to be in that position as uh, uh, like in your shoes and being like, you know what, I'm going to quit. I'm yeah. going to give this up and I'm just going to go and start something. What was that decision process? Like what happened in, in those days that said, you know what, I'm going to go and leave it all to go start something? Well, there's one simple phrase here, which is I, I hold on to this every day, which is tomorrow's problems will not be solved by today's thinkers. And so really what you're saying when, when you sort of think through that phrase is this, you're not going to be able to get to the next stage of growth in your life without taking a step out of what you're already doing and rethinking, reframing, and reapproaching a potential opportunity or problem. And so I've always been willing to do that. Like right now, I've stepped out of the traditional venture model intentionally to do direct investing because I think venture has changed so dramatically since I first got into the venture world. There was no angel list or there was no you know, Kickstarter or seed camp or crowdfunding or any of these other accelerators that, that have changed our world dramatically. So mm -hmm. I wanted to move completely away from any constraints and rethink and reframe how would I best serve entrepreneurs and how would I invest in them for their success. And I think that's just a common approach that I have. At every point when I see enough change, it's like the frog boiling in water, right? Mm. You've heard the story many times, I'm sure. You know, if you don't actually get outside the pan, you'll croak. Yeah. And you won't realize it. It's just... You know, that, that, that's a, a sort of wisdom of personal development that I've, that I've heard. And I think where it becomes hard as, as, um, as an individual is balancing between the knowledge of this leap of faith of sort of continued growth, balancing it with the need for commitment to whatever cause you've set forth, yep. especially during hardships, right? Because yep. these temptations to go and grow somewhere else come when things are, are maybe not rosy. Right? Yep. And so how, how, how should a founder think about that? Because I, I, had a, I had a chat with Spencer uh, Lazar from General Catalyst and he was sharing with me how he effectively at one point decided that his company wasn't going to work because he had an argument with his co-founder. But he very well could have stayed it and that could have been his continued growth is how to take that company out of the low point and then onto a higher point. And how do you balance that? How, in your mind, how do you balance that? Incredibly simple. Law of diminishing returns. And so let me be specific about it because I think this is a problem that, that all founders will run into. Right. Uh, do you pivot or do you persist or do you just get out? Yeah. Um, and I think the challenge is always to understand what value are you delivering to your customers and are you continuing to increase that value or are you seeing it diminish? And if you are seeing it diminish, you better question yourself at what point is it going to be worthless? And you'd be well ahead of that. And if you can keep seeing ways to build, hopefully, even accelerating value in your business. And, and when I look at my investments now, I'm so proud of the entrepreneurs that, that are doing great things. You know, I've mentioned a couple, but let me pick a completely raw startup that I just started working with that is, you know, a few people in a garage right now. They have literally not been willing to take my money until they showed that they could deliver value to customers and start doing it repeatedly. Wow. And I, I guarantee, and I know this is a great entrepreneur, by the way, he's going to be a great story to tell in a few years' time. I guarantee that he will never 
come to me and ask for money unless he can show that he's going to invest it to keep delivering more and more value to customers. Mm -hmm. Now, if he didn't, he'd use the same law I just said, which is the law of diminishing returns to say to himself, hey, I'm done here. I, there's no more value add mm -hmm. I can bring to this market. We should sell to somebody else who can you know, harvest what, the, what we've got, mm -hmm. or we should you know, obviously find some new products. But it's so important to const constantly ask yourself whether you're really making a difference and whether that difference is actually being valued by somebody. Hmm. But it's never a precise point. I guess it's 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 a, a series of plots of points. If you're feeling that a lot, then yeah. you're probably yeah. a transition point in your life. Well, there's there's some fantastic measures for entrepreneurs though in this. Yeah. Uh, let's bring it down to real unit economics. For yeah. example, if you are repeating your sale into your customer on a lower and lower cost, and that tells you that the customers are finding your your solution more and more easy to uh, buy yeah. and adopt. And then, if they're willing to accept upsell from you, you're able to sell them more products of higher value. Yeah. You're delivering more and more value. If you keep seeing longer sales cycles, less and less adoption in your customers or, or rollout of your products, and they're not willing to buy you know, new products and services you come out for, guess what? Yeah. You're, you're, <laughs> you're clearly in a position of diminishing value. Mm. So, once you made that jump, you built a couple of companies, yeah. um, and I guess, Based upon that, that law of sort of diminishing value, and I think I, I was checking out on LinkedIn kind of the interval, and there were like five years between, I guess, each one of them. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can kind of summarize, what, how, how was it that you, know, that you built value in those, and, and how did that journey end for one, begin another, the period of sort of like the mourning or, 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 yeah. or celebration, I don't know. I, mean, yeah. I don't know what you did between the two of them, but you know, that, that, that is, it's uncanny to see those kinds of transitions twice, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and three times, I guess, if you include semantics. So how did that thinking evolve? Well, let's take one that's, that's relevant, I think, to founders, because it's, it's kind of fun. Yeah. Um, I often hear founders say, gosh, you know, when I'm successful, I want to be a VC. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually didn't make that transition at all easily. Yeah. Uh, it was very hard. Uh, there was a thought in my mind which was actually brought to me by a bunch of, of VCs that I had been working with. They said, you know what, you could go do another company, but why wouldn't you consider coming and doing a whole series of companies simultaneously as a portfolio? And that really appealed to me. Yeah. What appealed to me was the notion that, you know, as a legacy now, instead of just doing, you know, one more public company or something, I could have I created a portfolio of, of successful companies that create, you know, some multiple of thousands of jobs. Uh, and that actually has, um, you know, had so much appeal at the time. It was like an obvious draw card. Of course, the truth is much harder than that. It turns out when I first got into VC, it was way harder, and it was much more work. I mean, this notion that you know you you can mm. just be a VC <laughs> and slack off. I'm sure you could, but I didn't. Yeah, um, is very different. But what was exciting was that it was obvious that if I could figure out, you know, how to help people in their build their business building play, um, process. Uh, you know, sort of on, on a multiple basis across a portfolio, it would make a real difference. Mm. Now, that same principle is still working for me as I think about this transition to doing things like, for example, you know, investing and, and also teaching at the same time. It's very clear to me that I could, you know, invest in a whole bunch of companies and only impact a certain audience right now. But if I step back and teach and I can figure out how to mentor and coach the next generation of entrepreneurs, mm. a thousand flowers could bloom, never mind one portfolio. Mm. And so that's why I've started teaching. And that's why I started mentoring. In the last three years, I have learned more from that than anything else. So to answer your original question about transitions, there always has to be a reason. Mm -hmm. And there was a reason, for example, to get into VC. I saw that ability to make a bigger difference. And there was a reason to move now to doing more teaching and mentoring and uh, direct investing so that I didn't you know, have the overhead of a VC fund. 
uh, which is I see it, I can make a bigger difference again. So you know the 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 transition from VC to to now educator and, and mentor to many, and then from entrepreneur to VC, um, those seem like uh, you know kind of when you graduate from you know yellow belt to green belt, green belt to black belt. But what was what unique about your background is that you have like these three massive sort of entrepreneurial hits, you know, one after another. Yeah. And and in, in some ways, were you looking for lessons there you felt you hadn't yet learned? Because I mean, like some of these later transitions seem to be like one role to shift to another role to another role, whereas these three were all kind of a similar nature. Yeah. What was the key lesson that you were still chasing after that? that um, well, uh, continuous learning is the quick answer. Right. I think a bit like the law of diminishing returns, I feel like if you ever stop learning, yeah. then you're you're missing something. So I have a real yearning to continue to learn. And, yeah. and again, it's sort of like a thirst that you'll never quench. Yeah. Um, but I want to be a, a little bit more humble than you're, you're <laughs> giving me, you know, honest assessment of, which is I probably learned more from my failure than I did any of my successes. And so yeah. some of these transitions were not my intent. Like the first business my brother and I built was extraordinarily successful before we took any VC. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's so long ago, it's 35 years ago, so around about uh, that, you know, these numbers seem tiny, but I think we built about a $27 million business that was like, you know, 22% pre-tax profit yeah. with, with no external capital to speak of. So it felt like a real success. But my father tapped me on the shoulder at one point and he said, you know nothing and you won't learn anything until you, until you actually go through some failure. Yeah. Of course, I hated him for saying it, but he was dead right. Yeah. And we got taken off at the knees when we entered the US market. We raised too much capital. We had a competitor that had uh, you know, 101 price performance advantage on us, where we had had the same on our competitors when we started. Yeah. Um, and we went through channels that were, well, sorry, we sold direct while they went through channels. So all the mistakes that I learned as that went down, eventually you know, some good things came of it, like HP ended up, Hewlett Packard ended up OEMing our product. But when it went down, about going to market and fundraising and building teams and doing companies, you know, in, in the multinational. So I learned way more than, in that than I did through all my success. Mm. And and then the weird thing about success is to separate being in the right place at the right time from what you actually did to make a difference. Mm. And it's much harder. In failure, you are forced to look at mm. what did you actually do and how are you accountable for it and what did you learn from it. And so a part of my passion now is actually enabling entrepreneurs to see that there is no failure, there's only learning. Yeah. Uh, because what came from it was a real desire, of course, to go and do it better again. Mm-hmm. And, and now I love helping entrepreneurs go through that same experience mm-hmm. themselves. Now, if this, you may or may not have one specific failure you can look back on and say it was fundamental in your shift in, in, in sort of learning. I, I can definitely think of, it within the last year, one failure that I had uh, at a discussion when I was having a discussion with another shareholder on some issue, that that, that thinking led me to a, a series of learnings. And, and, and that was like a massive series of like uh, exploration and books that I read just to sort of reconcile that, that, that discussion we were having. And I'm just curious if, you, if you've ever... I have one, yeah. F- what was it? Yeah. Can you share it? Or? <laughs> I definitely could share it, yeah. All right. uh, and uh, the individual concerned will probably know very well. And I have a fun story that comes out of it too. So uh, when I was building European Software Publishing, which was actually the holding company for uh, many in- investments that we brought over to Europe, yeah. uh, a couple of which went public and three of which got acquired, and, and one of which you've already mentioned was Symantec, 
Um, I had at one point multiple companies under that holding company which were all getting leverage out of the same business model. In other words, we could sell multiple products through the same channels to the same customers and so we got tremendous leverage from things like the go-to-market as well as the support and the service. But it relied on all of those execs getting along in the business units that ran them. And I made two mistakes that I will never forget. <laughs> Number one is I finally found a guy, a really strong guy, who'd been running a very successful business. I think it was Ashton Tate at the time in Europe. Mm. And I hired him to run what was a business that was really taking off at the time. It was before we called it you know, business intelligence, but it was our data access and reporting yeah. uh, product line. And, uh, and it was really taking off. I brought him in, and I didn't give him full un. Uh, you know, full control. I should I should have given him everything that he needed, yeah. and I was way too involved with him. And part of it was I was frankly too excited about the growth that we were experiencing in that okay. business. Uh, and I, I look back and I go, "There's a perfect example of what you've got to learn the hard way sometimes, which yeah. is how do you empower people and how do you set them up for success and how do you remove barriers from them?" And and by the way, you know, it's easy to say and it's hard to yeah. do. So on that, um, there's a self awareness debate there. Yeah, was it that you you loved it so much and it brought so much satisfaction to you to be involved that you then were not able to give him that authority or was it that you hired him and actually maybe you didn't want to accept it to yourself but you didn't trust him enough to then give him that and therefore you felt obliged and of course you put a veneer of of this is exciting for you on it but can you look back at that moment and say actually because I could see where a founder would be either I don't trust this guy but he's the best guy for the job that I can find and uh, maybe if I just kind of supervise him, that's better. Or the, inversely, you just you just love it so much, you've done it, but you regret it because it's now taking away your baby. Yeah. Well, talking of babies, you can't be half pregnant in this case. And this <laughs> is the point. You can't give somebody half control of something. Either you've given somebody the authority and the appropriate responsibility associated with that. Yeah. And they've got to be in equal measures to be successful. So they can measure their success for themselves mm. uh, or you haven't. And if you haven't given them that, then there's no way that you can really judge them. And so I, I don't believe I'd given him the equal you know, authority as well as responsibility to measure his own success. And it was obvious to me after the, after the fact. And, and you know, I've you know, talked about it since mm. then. Now the great news is I learned from it and the next guy I hired, um, who actually ended up running Symantec um, in, in the sort of bigger picture when it went on, uh, was such a good recruit. I mean, and he's, such, he's a good friend to this day. Mm. I just celebrated his 60th birthday mm. uh, with his daughter the other day. And, and I, I can honestly say the guy was so good and he deserved to be successful. And I didn't have to give him anything. If all I did was just look at the guy in the morning and say, good morning, I'm sure he would have been successful. There was nothing I had to do to add value to him. He was just a good hire. Mm. And once you find somebody like that, just get out of their way and support the heck out of them and remove all the barriers around them and obviously make sure you integrate them with anything they need. Mm. But uh, enable them, empower them, set them up for success. It's so mm. easy. So it was such a joy to see that happen. He did an awesome job, knocked it out of the park, ended up running you know, Northern Europe and much more and did great things. Mm. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on a situation that probably many founders find themselves in, which is we are looking for that kind of guy. Yeah. Everyone's looking for that kind of guy. And if you find that guy, fair enough. Like that's yeah. everything you just described. But the likelihood is that one of two choices is the case. Either you continue to drag along with just two guys and producing product at whatever clip the one guy who's coding away can do. Or you bring on somebody, maybe it's the best out of 30 people you've interviewed, but you kind of know that you're going to have to support it, but your productivity just went up 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60%. And provided that he's not sort of caustic to the business, at least he's adding value. He's not that guy that you just described. 
Would you say, actually, don't even bother hiring that guy. Keep on looking. Interview 30 more. Or would you say there is a way to actually bring value out of that 60% plus that comes from hiring this guy, but you're really looking to replace him quite quickly? Where, where, where would you stand on that? So there are two pieces to this. One is the guy, and the other is the team. Hmm. And so to be specific about it, it's very rare that one person in their own right is going to be the determinant of your success of your business. Mm-hmm. If you if you have that, it's probably a weakness. Um, so you're really trying to say, is this guy awesome, excellent, uniquely qualified at something? And if they are, and that's their strength, are they self-aware enough and, or, and are you aware enough of how to complement them on the other dimensions they might be missing mm-hmm. with the rest of the team? And, and if you can do that and you can build a team around people's strengths and constantly build what in the end is a synthesis of strengths to pursue your vision and mission all sorts of things are possible I'd mm. say actually anything's possible uh, and that's what really happens in these cases you, you you don't however want to compromise on any dimension in which you are relying on somebody so for example if you've hired somebody who's a domain expert then they better be the domain expert they better be the go-to person that in the marketplace people say Carlos is the guy I want to talk to about supply chain mm. He is a known expert in that. Mm. Now, if he's no good at managing and he's absolutely useless at, for example, vision or whatever it Mm. might be, that's fine. Mm. There there are other people who can do that piece. Mm. But he's the go-to guy on Mm. this thing. You can build around that. Mm. That's where you don't compromise. Fair enough. Fair enough. And one of the things that you probably have dealt with quite a bit um, along the journey that you've had has been working with not just founders as an investor, Mm -hmm. but with other shareholders whilst they're supporting the founders. Very know, much so, yeah. Boards or advisory boards or that kind of stuff. And maybe an area to sort of explore, which we haven't really covered before, is this idea of, of finding the right people. But yeah. sometimes it's not like the choice of you or, or, or sometimes it's whoever ponied up the capital to be part of the round or whatever. Maybe, maybe we can start exploring the ideas behind the ideal board. Maybe in your words, um, how do you know that you have a functional board? Like to start there, like how do you know that you don't have a dysfunctional board? Okay, that's really simple. <laughs> there are two words that a board has to pay attention to, sync and pace. Yeah. Number one is the board functional in sync with the entrepreneur. And do they know what the entrepreneur is trying to do? Are they clear what the exec team is trying to achieve? And can they stay in sync with that? Now, it's the job on both sides, by the way, because um, the CEO, the founder, the exec team should keep the board fully informed and make sure that they are in sync with what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And then the second measure of functionality is, is the board as a whole, and by the way, I consider myself as a CEO or a founder when I'm on the board, just as much as an investor now when I'm an investor on the board, mm-hmm. as responsible for this, are we pacing our attack on our market opportunity at the right level? And so if we are, we will make sure that we fully realize the market potential. If we're not, we're going to fall behind. And if we are over the top of it and you know ahead of our ski tips, we're going to burn money that we should just basically waste it. Yeah. So sync and pace are the two things. And, and functional boards stay in sync and they pace the business correctly and they use resources and invest wisely. All right, so if we take those two things, sync and pace, and you're a founder and you have the pick of the litter, you can pick anybody you want, how would you go about uh, picking uh, investors or, or board members such that you can optimize around sync and pace. Okay, so I believe that hiring and recruiting is the same for any stakeholder as it is for an employee. So I have this uh, framework you've probably seen on my site called mm-hmm. um, hiring for A+. Plus. Mm-hmm. And the three A's, A's that I look for are attitude, aptitude, and ability. But mm-hmm. note that ability is last. 
uh, the attitude and aptitude are just as uh, fundamental as anything else. Mm. And so even when I'm going out recruiting, let's not, let's not even talk about investors, let's talk about customers. Mm. Your first customers can be really, really crucial in your success. Sometimes you'll find a customer who's got the right attitude, who wants to help you succeed because it's going to help their career, for example. Mm. Those are the customers I look for. Mm. If I find a customer who's got a bad attitude and just wants to squeeze the heck out of you for pricing and doesn't care about your product or your company, I'm not going to deal with them, even if they are potentially a great first customer because mm. you know there are going to be problems with them. So whether it's customers or it's investors or it's employees or even partners, mm. particularly actually strategic partners, you should be looking through the same attributes and understanding what have you really got here uh, to find whether they're a fit for your culture and for your vision and mission of your business. And if, if they are, great, bring them on. Um, if they're not, move on. It's, mm. it's so much better to hire the right person than the person right now. Hmm. Fair enough. Makes sense. Um, well, if you take that in mind and you've done the right job, then in theory, you should never have to get rid of anyone. Right, in theory. But that's not how life is. <laughs> life is not like that. So, you know, you've sort of inherited a board, maybe yep. because, you know, the, the fund that you raised had a charismatic uh, deal lead, and then all of a sudden, the person who ends up on the board is the guy who can take the meetings, and it isn't the guy that you were sold. And Yep, it um, happens. It happens. And, and so, how do you go about managing or perhaps even firing the board if, if necessary, if that pace and sync isn't at what, what, what's necessary? It's really hard, as, as I'm honest enough to say about VCs. There's a high barrier to exit with your VCs. Mm. Uh, and so the reality is, in some cases, you can't change it. You just have to learn, learn to work around it. But I have seen companies go down because their VCs have been changed. Uh, and they find themselves with somebody who just doesn't believe in the vision, doesn't you know, necessarily support the founder. Mm. And the next thing you know, you've lost your funding support. And you need a rounded, balanced board and a rounded, balanced funding syndicate for mm. companies to be successful at the scale that we're talking about building billions of value. Mm. So it's hard, honestly. Um, and that's why it's, it's really important that what we talked about just a minute ago mm. is where you put your emphasis on selection right up front. Okay, so if you've, if you've done the selection right, you've kind of swallowed the sour pill of those that you've inherited that you can't get rid of. What would be the, the sort of the best managed boards from a founder's point of view? Mm -hmm. uh, the best managed boards that you've, you've seen, like what, what, what's been the, the thing that the founder has done repeatedly that led to that board being a functional board? Okay, so there's a lot too much emphasis put on boards, so I'm going to use the board term in a broader sense. Yeah, governance, so, advisory. Yeah, the, the, the board and the notion of a board is obviously to support the company and all its stakeholders, which does not mean that you're representing yourself just as an investor. You're representing all the stakeholders if mm. you're doing your job correctly to pursue, obviously, the creation of value mm. uh, and the building of, you know, of, of uh, a business that can obviously, in, in its entirety, support its stakeholders. Mm. So what we, I think, see when we see good boards is something very simple. We see representation of all those stakeholders in a way that is balanced and that helps the business on a day-to-day -day basis be successful. So let's talk about that for a second. It's great when you get bigger, for example, to bring a customer voice onto the board. Mm. It's great to have, if it's appropriate, some kind of a partner voice if channel is extremely mm. important to you. But you have to be careful though that you don't get you know, confused agendas or um, putting people out of sync with, for example, being customers and partners mm. versus independent advisors. And then that's the third point, is to have independent outside-in viewpoints from them and other people 
that guide your business to do what obviously is best to, to approach a marketplace. Mm. And then on the inside, obviously you need somebody who's representing the biggest you know asset you have, which is your employee base and your team. Mm. And so hopefully that's the CEO, but can also oftentimes be the founder or mm. it might be somebody else you promote from up. And then of course, you know, your investors and you want those in balance too. I often say it's like Martinez, you know, mm. one's great, two's too many, sometimes three's definitely too many. Um, but you really, by the time you get to be a mature board, want to have a group that's uh, a, a balanced representation of all those things. And also, yeah. as you go public, obviously, it becomes necessary for governance purposes to cover all the functional areas, you know, audit yeah. and compensation, etc. Um, but in the earliest of stages, I just look for the sort of miniature versions of that. Okay, mm. who is going to be the voice of the customer here? Who's going to be the person who you know represents, for example, how we're actually doing in terms of building our team? Who's going to help, for example, make sure that we've got somebody who's mm. really thinking about the investor uh, mindset here mm. and keep that in balance and just work in as efficient a way as possible to stay on the same page to, mm. again, to stay in sync and stay on pace. And in staying sync, do you think that it's better if a founder um, prepends a board meeting with individual meetings with uh, the, the people around the table as a way of sort of solidifying that? A series of action items and feedback into something that is then discussed more efficiently in the board or, or are alternatives to that? So that th- there are three th- simple principles here. One is no surprises. Yeah. And the second is make sure that as a result of there being no surprises, whatever you're trying to do in your board meeting is extremely clear. Yeah. So if that's not clear, uh, obviously you're not going to have a good meeting. And then the third is be transparent. Yeah. Um, because there's enormous, I think, mistake that, that gets sort of established in, the, in dysfunctional boards, which is that people feel like they've got to present to the board, mm. uh, and entrepreneurs come in and feel like they've got to have all the answers in the boardroom. Mm. Uh, that is not why we have board meetings. We have board meetings as check-ins mm. um, to make sure that we are all in sync and that we are on pace to go do a great job. Mm. And if there are plenty of times when we as an entirety of board do not have the answers. But if we're transparent about what problems or issues we have to address, then they have a chance of going off and, and, and succeeding at you know, identifying them and, and resolving them. But if we have managers come in and present to us and they're hiding things or they're just trying to show, tell the right story or yeah. they're trying to make things look good, we're all going to get into a lot of trouble. So, uh, you know, just, just be no surprises, you know, very clear about what you're going to get done and totally transparent. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, that, that makes total sense. And, and it's consistent, actually, with, with what I've seen some of the best boards run. So that's true. Um, well, we always, uh, we always like to end uh, with an opportunity for you to shamelessly plug anything you want to plug. Um, and I know that you're an avid photographer, so we could plug your portfolio or we could plug <laughs> any charity plug that. That, that you, you're passionate about. So, uh, yeah, just... I'll, I'll, I'll simplify it. I think the future belongs to entrepreneurs. I think the problems of the world that are up and coming are going to be solved by the next generation of entrepreneurs. So I shamelessly plug entrepreneurship and hope that people will use things like Startup Secrets or Harvard iLab or any of the resources that you're creating, your new book. I'm looking forward to that to help the next generation of entrepreneurs go solve the problems of tomorrow because I think that's how we're going to be a better world. Cool. All right. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for joining us. And to everyone, talk soon. Bye.